All right, everybody, welcome to Deering Live. It is Thursday. We're so happy to be back. Um, thank you for everyone who's tuning in. Um, now, before we uh, move on to some amazing music and some conversation, let's uh, introduce our guest today. Miss Alison Brown is one of today's finest progressive banjo players, and you'd be just as likely to find her leading a jazz ensemble or playing uh, Celtic music as you would in a bluegrass setting. She is a Grammy Award winner and founder of the world-renowned Compass Records. She has played with some of the finest musicians on the planet with her sublime banjo playing, and joining us here today is the incredible Miss Alison Brown. Alison, how are you doing? Doing great, thank you. That was a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. I wrote it myself. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> you. <laughs> And uh, with us as always is uh, Master David Banjowski lurking in the back. You will notice, everybody, that we are using a brand new platform today. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Um, and we will be live on YouTube, on the website, and on Facebook as well. So this promises to be a, re a very fun one. But I think let's get started. Alison, would you mind uh, playing us in a little something? Sure. I've got my, uh, my Julia Bell low banjo in a double C tuning, and I thought I'd play a little bit of a couple of old tunes that I wrote in this tuning. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Thanks Thank for being you. here. Yeah, why don't it's you, my pleasure. Uh, why don't you tell us about that banjo you have? That that uh, um, you know what's you know what's different about it? Yeah, sure. Um, I would be glad to do that. Actually, the story kind of starts 
with this banjo that I just happen to have over here. This is, folks can see this, this is John Hartford's prototype Deering Low Banjo. And uh, I guess Greg and John worked together on this instrument. And John, this uh, really kind of was, whoops, out of tune right now, but it was definitely, you know, like John's voice. And a lot of times he would just accompany his baritone vocals with the banjo. And he tuned mm -hmm. the banjo low, so, you know, the regular G banjo or bluegrass banjo is tuned to an open G chord, but John mm -hmm. would often tune his banjo to an open E chord or a D chord, sometimes an F chord. So this was in tune. Let me see if I can get it back there. There we go. And so I would find that a lot of times, you know, when I'm if I'm doing a session and it's not a bluegrass session, especially like uh, playing on a more of a rock record or like with Indigo Girls, for example. Like sometimes, you know, what's called for is the banjo to kind of percolate in the track and sit in the track a little bit um, more than it does in a bluegrass context where it's more out front. And I found that I used this low banjo a lot. about it was that I, I started to like write music for it and really envision a lot more uses for this instrument but I was afraid to travel with John's banjo and so um, that's when kind of we decided to collaborate together on a version 2.0 of the John Hartford low banjo and that's where the Julia Bell came from so in essence I really kind of wanted the instrument to be a tribute to John because you know there are other people who will play the low strung banjo, but to me it's like really John who spearheaded that whole sound. So this instrument, I um, had a chance to work with um, Katie Hogue, who's John's daughter. She gave me access to all of John's art files, and I picked out some illustrations of John's that I really liked, you know, because John went to art school and he was really a great artist in addition to being many other things. And so I picked out some illustrations to try to tell the story of the banjo and it kind of occurred to me that the banjo was really the Julia Bell, especially when I found the illustration that became the Peghead. I don't know if you guys can see it. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great, you know, kind of it was a line sketch of a girl uh, that's on one of his albums. And Jamie Deering had the idea of colorizing her. And so she's Julia Bell. And then you can see John's illustration of Captain Trone here on the third fret. He was the guy who taught John how to pilot a steamboat on the Mississippi River. And there's a sketch that John did of uh, the Julia Bell Swain, which was Captain Trone's boat, and that's right here on the 12th fret. So this is kind of the John Hartford-inspired Julia Bell low banjo, and it's a really just super fun instrument to play. A lot of times I think um, banjo players, you know, were, were so used to playing that high kind of sustaining banjo and then when you pick up an instrument that's tuned a little bit lower and it has a lot of bottom and low resonance it inspires you to do some different things plus it makes it a lot easier to play in keys like e and and d if you want to play out of an open g position right so that was a very long-winded answer to your question <laughs> no that's good um I've, I've got one here and i i love i love playing it you're right um just playing you know sometimes just playing the same things that you normally play in a standard G banjo, but then it, it opens up the creative, um, you know, the mind starts, the creative side of my mind start, oh, you know, with that different resonance coming out. So it's, it's just, it's fun to play. 
And, and then you mentioned uh, in some in recordings, you often like to sit lower in the mix, and you'd use the lower tuned banjo. Um, would that just be for those keys, or would you use it, um, or would you use the lower tuned banjo, lower tuned banjo, and also play in and say, um, you know, G or something like that, and and get a deeper tone? Yeah, but more so, it has to do with the keys. Right. So if if you want to kind of you know, it's really, and I've got another banjo in my hands that's in a C tuning, but if you're trying to, like, if if what the person whose record it is really wants to have is that kind of driving banjo roll, it's, sometimes it's best to get that out of the key of G. But if the track is in D or E, that's kind of impossible to do without either putting your capo way up on the neck, which would be a terrible idea, or mm-hmm. picking up a low banjo. So, um yeah, that's what I tend to find. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, of course, I think in all recordings, banjo should be front and center. But a lot of times when people bring banjo in on a session, they want it to be, it's just kind of like a little bit of, of, of an extra seasoning to right. your dish. It's it's not the main course. So okay. just trying to figure out a way to tuck the banjo in and still have it propel the track, but not take over or, you know, not make people think, oh, they're, they're trying to make a bluegrass track out of this. Right, right. Especially when you're work, like backing up a songwriter or something, not 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 in yeah. the progress format. Exactly. So, how did you get started playing the banjo? You you grew up in in San Diego area, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually born in Connecticut and got my first taste of banjo when we were still living back in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. But my family moved to San Diego in the mid seventies. And that's when I discovered the San Diego Bluegrass Club. And I had started playing banjo, but I'd been a like finger-pick guitar player before that. And the banjo was actually a pretty hard transition for me, mostly because of the picks. It was just going from finger-style guitar, where I was playing with just my fingers, to being used to playing with finger-picks was a challenge, and it made me not practice the banjo as much as I should have initially. But when, once we moved to San Diego, and I started to meet the people at the San Diego Bluegrass Club, and find circles to jam in in the parking lot, then it really kind of um, accelerated my, you know, advancement on the banjo and also my interest in figuring out what what I could do with the banjo. So it was very much a product of the Southern California bluegrass scene. Yeah, I I lived out in San Diego for for about five years and was really surprised at um, how much of a bluegrass scene there was there. And And then learning your background from there and uh, Stuart Duncan's from there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Stuart, of course, for anyone who doesn't know, is like the greatest, one of the greatest fiddle players that's ever lived. I mean, he's an amazing musician. And you're right, I first saw him at the San Diego Bluegrass Club meeting when he was 12 years old. And uh, he was playing, played a Paul Warren solo on Earl's Breakdown and just blew me away. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you have a, a real distinctive sound and, and you play a wide range of styles, you know, on the banjo and often use uh, different instruments, you know, not not associated with the typical you know, bluegrass format, um, you, you know, piano and drums and electric bass. And uh, how did you kind of go down this path to create this sound and how would you kind of describe the sound, your sound that you, that you, that you have? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a great question. I'm not really sure how to describe it. Um, you know, I wish I could come up with a great moniker like dog music, what Grisman <laughs> thought of for his music. <laughs> or, 
pussy music just doesn't seem to work the same way. Um, <laughs> so I still haven't thought of a really great handle for it. But essentially, it's, you know, when I started to write my own tunes, um, it just surprised me that they seemed to take me in a direction away, a little bit away from bluegrass. Now, my technique is obviously rooted in bluegrass because I've kind of came up playing Scrugg style. But the melodies and stuff, as I tried to figure out the best way to put them across... I thought that it would be, you know, like a bluegrass band, but it turned out that piano was really just the perfect complement to my ears to what I was writing. Mm -hmm. And so, and Gary West, who's my husband and label co-founder and musical conspirator for the last many years, is an electric bass player. So, you know, that kind of became a, an obvious part of the mix. And, you know, having like a drums percussion element just seemed to, to free up what I was doing and kind of encouraged me to open up my thinking because I think, you know, if you come out of bluegrass music, um, you know, the thing that diversifies the tunes is the, the melody. It's not the rhythm. Like in bluegrass music, things are in two or they're in three once in a while or four. But, you know, the, the improvisation, the interesting stuff is happening with the melody. Well, when you start to play with percussionists and people who come from a different musical genre, it forces you to open up your thinking about different kinds of grooves, which sounds like such a basic thing. But that was a huge thing for me, though, coming out of bluegrass to think, oh, well, there's more than just one feel, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it ended up just sort of being kind of like a natural progression thing, you know, trying to write music, surprising myself by having that music not be bluegrass tunes, and then trying to figure out the best way to put it across. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up playing five-string banjo, but then kind of uh, moved over. I went to school for jazz guitar then, and uh, and and so your your sound when I was, uh, I remember your Out of the Blue album, and and there was that you know that you know starting to get in some jazz elements in there, and uh, and and so it was really fresh because I I had I was happy to hear these news this new way to take. The, you know the sound of the banjo because I was trying to, you know, in, in my ears go in a different direction. You know, I love bluegrass, but also trying to go and, and open it up. So, um, you know, what kind of what? Where'd you go? You know, did it just come using those sort of jazz textures and harmonies? Just kind of come out on you know as you started to develop. Well, that's another great question. And and I didn't realize you had a background as a jazz guitar player. It's like in, in some other life, I want to be a jazz guitar player who can speak Japanese. So I don't know if I'll get to that place or not. But, um, you know, I, I listened to a lot of Joe Pass records kind of secondarily because my dad played them a lot around the house when I was growing up. So I, I heard that kind of stuff and that kind of jazz guitar in late 50s, early 60s jazz, I really like. And I was, I was and am a huge fan of the David Grisman Quintet, which kind of opened the door to how people coming out of acoustic, you know, bluegrass instrumentals can broaden their own palette and what they're trying to do. So it seemed like, an, like a kind of obvious progression. But I will say I don't consider myself to be a jazz musician because um, I have way too much respect for jazz musicians to call myself one. Um, but it's something that that it's, it's a continual aspiration for me. And really the whole thing has just been a product of writing tunes and then being like, okay, well, this, you know, sounds cool with sort of a jazz rhythm section and a guy playing jazz piano 
So now how do I play something that's credible? And then just trying to find the vocabulary that I need to, to play something that I find satisfying. Um, but I will say, you know, like during the pandemic, I've been taking jazz guitar lessons just because I love that stuff so much. I love the, the possibilities of harmony that's more than just like your basic G, C, and D chord, which is, you know, what we come up with in bluegrass music, which is awesome and powerful, but there's so much more out there too. And, and it's really also connected. It's just a few steps away. If you take some of those ideas, you can really sort of broaden the possibilities for what you write yourself and, and kind of what the banjo can do, which of course was there at the birth of jazz in the first place. So it, it really makes a lot of sense. Have you been able to bring any of any of those sort of chord melodies over to the banjo from you taking some jazz guitar lessons? Yeah, um, well, not those specifically, but I mean, I love to sit around with the banjo and, you know, noodle around on, on finding chord melodies. And I love to show that to people, too, because uh, I think a lot of banjo players, you know, when I teach at a, a camp or whatever, and in fact, I'm teaching a class for the American Banjo Camp this weekend about chord melodies for, for banjo. I think a lot of us, you know, because the banjo isn't written down in notation and you don't take traditional music lessons to learn to play the banjo. You go to somebody who knows how to play Pike County Breakdown and they teach you how to play it and that's kind of how you learn. So I think as a result, a lot of banjo players don't think about what notes they're playing when they play something. But if you can open someone's eyes to that and how you can, like, you know, augment your chords or, like, with quotes around augment, but, you know, make altered chords and more harmonically rich chords, uh, it becomes really exciting. So it's something that I, I love to think about and hope to get better at. Can you give us a little demonstration or about of this at all? Yeah, sure. I just need to pick up a banjo that's in standard tuning. Otherwise sure. it would sound pretty terrible. <laughs> Let's see. This banjo sounds so high all of a sudden, doesn't it? <laughs> After, After going. There's nothing like the sound of banjo being tuned on multiple platforms at the same time. So you might take something like, um, you know, well, maybe just volume here a little bit, like this. And are you, when you, I know for myself, when I play chord melodies, either um, I'm looking at the, the, the first, I'm looking at the highest string, the, the first string or whatever the melody note is on. Is that how you're mentally looking at it? Or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you take something like, 
And and any I know we have banjo players who are, are watching, so if this kind of sounds interesting to you, yeah, find a melody on the first string and you know, just like let's see. And then think about what you can put underneath that. So it could be as simple as just your basic chords. Or you can get, you know, fancier with it and uh And that's what's so wonderful about it. Like, even just playing it the simplest way, it's still beautiful. But then if you just start to alter tones in your chords, you can just add so much, uh, just so much more volume to it. It's, it's super fun. And I think it also, you know, with everybody trying to play bluegrass, and, and it's, you know, bluegrass is a very technical, technical, it's fast and very technical music. Um, but it's... Um, you can play slowly on on the banjo and make great music. You don't have to play fast. Would you? Would you agree? I'm so glad you said that, um, because I feel like you know the whole thing with Scruggs style roles is this really complex mathematical thing, and because you're you've got three fingers and you're kind of playing three against four all the time, and I feel like. A lot of times I've gone to camps and, and talked to students about it, and I, can, I feel like the right hand is a real obstacle to getting enjoyment out of the instrument and getting to the place of being able to enjoy it by yourself and then playing with other people. So that's the whole goal. That's the whole goal right there, is to have fun with it. So that's what I love to tell people in my class. It's like, forget the picks. Just do it with your bare fingers and just play some chords, you know? And not only will you kind of surprise yourself what you can find. You'll also probably be the most popular banjo player at the next cocktail party you go to because it's just, it's appealing, you know, it's, it's more, it's beautiful and it's not the grating, you know, stuff, which is great too, but has its place. So I, I'm really glad that you said that people think the banjo is just like this instrument for, to accompany high speed car chases and bank robberies. <laughs> You know, and that's, I guess that's the, the legacy of all those years of hee-haw reruns and Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, all those use, sync uses of the banjo in the 20th century. But if you think back, you know, to the, to the 19th century and the kind of music that people were playing on the banjo, especially at the end of the 1800s, it was, you know, classic banjo. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it was probably more lyrical and it certainly had kind of made possibly some different harmonic ideas in there. So it's all part of the legacy of the instrument. So why not bring it out? Right. Right. Yeah. People sometimes get too hung up on just the driving role, which is, which is fantastic, but lose kind of the harmony part of it. I totally agree. I mean, and they're both great, but why not have both? I mean, it's yeah. like, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I know myself too. As as I don't, I don't have as much time to practice because it's uh, it's it's nice. I can go back and say, all right, I don't have to, I don't have to play because to, to stay fast and clean, I have to practice, or else the muscles just don't work. Is that right? And so it's nice. I can go back and play something that sounds, you know, sounds sounds great, but it may not be the barn burning thing that that I used to be able to do. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm really glad that you said that because that's a great point. So kind of going back with your history of, uh, of yourself, you, you, um, you toured with uh, Alison Krauss for a long, for, for a number of years. How, how did that kind of happen? Um, fortuitously, <laughs> <laughs> I was, um, I was an investment banker, um, living in San Francisco, uh, after I'd finished college and graduate school. And I had, you know, kind of come to this place after, you know, refunding tax exempt bond issues for a few years, um, where I felt like I wasn't as enamored of that as I probably should be to devote so much of my waking time to it. So I'd taken a little hiatus from Wall Street, and a mutual friend introduced us. And so Allison and I started, you know, talking by phone and stuff. And she called me up one day, and she had lost her banjo player and needed someone to fill in on a couple weekends' worth of work. And it was just one of those super lucky things. So I went out and did the couple weekends, and after that, you know, that kind of turned into about three years with the band. Right, and helped you make the make make you the jump from in, you know into a full time music career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was great on so many levels because you know when you grow up playing bluegrass music in California. You dream about places like Pike County or like <laughs> Cumberland Gap, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you see these song titles in the Earl Scruggs book, and it's just kind of um, suggestions of this, these faraway places that you might tend to romanticize. And when you finally get to play bluegrass music in, in Pike County or <laughs> drive down the road and see the sign that says Cumberland Gap, like you know you're at the heart of like the, the terroir or whatever that created this music. And the people and the culture that created the music too. So for me, it's, it's fascinating on a lot of levels, but um, certainly on the most basic level, it was great to be like in a professional touring band and a really exciting time in Allison's career where she was kind of making that leap from, you know, kind of, you know, well-known in bluegrass circles to, you know, being, you know, on the mainstream radar. So that was pretty cool. And how'd you make your leap from being, you know, a, 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 you know, a side member in, in, in a band to, to a band leader? Um, well, that's another good question. Uh, well, when I was in Allison's band, I made my first solo record, um, which came out on Vanguard Records. It's called Simple Pleasures. And, you know, that had kind of grown out of just me trying to push myself to see if I could write my own music because I hadn't really ever done much of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote the tunes and made the album, and it got a Grammy nomination, which was a really special nice thing and then and i and then i made a second record and then i'm kind of like okay well i've got these tunes and occasionally people would say well do you want to come play them so as the opportunity started to develop to present the tunes i had to put together a band and um so i put together the band and i guess that made me de facto band leader although i will say you know gary west has had you know the musical vision for what we do with our band is is as much his as it is mine and um, it's just some, something that we're constantly, you know, just trying to refine. But basically the core of it was just the music that I've, I've written and that I write and then just trying to put it across. And what would you say for, um, for some, some up-and-coming artists that are trying to um, kind of make it to the next level? Because you're also... Uh, if, People don't know you're you you won't you're co-founder of, of Compass Records as well, mm-hmm. so you, yeah. you you know 
you know both sides of it you know that you know the business side of it uh and 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 the musical side of it mm-hmm. so um, something well, yeah go ahead yeah i was just gonna say i mean it sounds it sounds a little bit um rude but it's not really um i guess my biggest advice would be if you can quit you should and by that i really mean that um you know, it's the music business is a really competitive business, and the people that succeed are the ones that have just an immense drive and fire in the belly for it. And they're the people who are going to do their art no matter what, and they're just going to persevere and make it happen. And if you're trying to decide between, like, being an artist or being a barista, then maybe you should be a barista. Because, you know, making it as an artist, if you don't have the the willingness to sleep in your car or sleep on someone's couch or like do the hard work to make it happen. Um, chances are it's, it's probably not going to happen for you. And even if you do do those things, it's still a gamble. Um, so that, that would be my first piece of advice. And then if you're somebody who's like, you know, really feels that this is the thing that you're meant to do and you're going to do it no matter what, then I think that you need to work on building your, your fan base and what we tell people is, you know, obviously we're in a difficult time for that now, although I'm seeing a lot of great things that people are doing with regard to live streams and staying engaged with their audience. And technology makes it more easy than it's ever been to engage with your audience. That's the thing, is build your audience, build your fan base, because to keep ramping your career up to the next level, I mean, you need to have a bigger and bigger population of people that want to hear what you do. If you're trying to bring other partners in and engage a label or you know, other people that might help you get access to the wider market while they want to know that you have, that there's interest for what you do. It's impossible for a record label, and we've been in this situation, if you have an artist that's so developing that they haven't built up a fan base and a concentric circle of places where they can go tour and people that'll come see them in that email database full of names and the followers on Facebook, if you don't have all those things, it's the label's moving too fast for where you are. And the label really needs to be able to lock arms with the artist and move forward at the same speed. So if if we don't have an artist where um, people in Portland, Maine and Portland, Oregon are interested in hearing about them because they haven't been there yet, it's you're not ready for the bigger push. So right. I think that that's the other bit of advice is just keep building your fan your fan base and network and do it you know every day, work at it every day. It's it's your job and. If you have the determination behind your art and just kind of that basic, you know, single-mindedness about building that audience, then then you're well on your way, I think. And where do you see the role in the record label in today's music industry, given that, you, you know, any independent artist can record at home on their computer and sound, make it sound pretty good and, and publish it, you know, get it distributed out there digitally on Apple Music yeah. as well? Absolutely. Um, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, do you hear it? And I think that's really the challenge, because um, you're right. Any, any one of us on this Zoom call could make a recording probably today in our homes and put it up on CD Baby, and it would be out there. But, you know, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. So then you need to build a team around what you're doing to help put the meaning around it and help get the word out about it, whether it's you know, on, on the promotion side of things, get the word out at radio with press, journalists, online, print. And then I think, you know, we are still strong believers in the retail presence as being an important part of the effort um, because people do still 
consume what they see when if they go into a record store or what they see online at Amazon. So it's important to have your product placed where people can find it, not just buried, you know, in lines of metadata somewhere. So I think I think that that's what the label brings, and I know as an artist myself, you know, it's like trying to be an artist and making solo records and touring behind my music, that it's really hard to do both things. And it definitely takes away from your artistry if you're trying to figure out also, you know, how to uh, pay mechanical royalties on the songs on your record that you sold a few streams of through Spotify and how to figure out, you know, all the different royalty streams that even come off a stream off Spotify mm -hmm. or even how to collect the royalties that are flowing off those streams in foreign territories. I mean, it's all really nuanced and complicated. And I think that really if you're an artist, you're best served by doing your art and finding a team to put around you. And I think that that's the role of the label. And so in essence, it's really kind of the, the role that the label has always had. Mm -hmm. um, and what if you're an artist who doesn't have much of a fan base, but, um, but wants, to, wants to record something, um, has something they want to express and capture? Is it worth it for them to, to do this, do you think? Or sh um, what's the inspiration for them to actually go ahead and actually do this? But for myself, I know personally, you know, a lot of the times I'm like, well, I'm not going to sell any. Um, mm -hmm. So why do it? Okay. Okay. Well, so that's a great question. So I'm working on a new record of my own. And relative to the new Taylor Swift record, I know it's not going to sell a fraction of what she sold. But it's something that's important to me to do. And just the way I think for you, it's it's something that's important to you to do. And even if nobody listens to it, that's part of the fire in the belly. It's something that you're driven to do. And it's something that teaches you more about yourself, and it gives you a channel to express yourself. And the lucky thing is that, you know, recording is relatively so affordable now compared to what it used to be when you had to go in a studio and record on two-inch tape, you know? Right. So certainly, if if that's what you're driven to do, I think you absolutely owe it to yourself to do it. Even if nobody listens to it or just to know for yourself, just to bring a smile to yourself that you created this thing, absolutely, you should do it. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, the market's, yeah, yeah. The market's so hard. But, it's always great advice. Know, yeah, it's it's one of the difficult things for me. It's like sitting on, on the spike of being at you know the owner of a record company and seeing how hard it is you know, to get music out there and to get attention for artists that I think are making great art. And it kind of is easy to come home and say, well, it's so hard to sell music these days, why do I need to bother? But at the end of the day, you need to do it because that's what you're driven to do and that's what pleases you. So that's the start. That's the start of the whole thing. And that right. comes back to the if you can quit, you should. Right. If you're not that driven to do it, then spare yourself the heartbreak. Do something else, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's easier ways to make money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, go work for Deering Banjos. <laughs> um, getting back to to the plane of the banjo um, and helping out, you know, we have many, many banjos are watching, but uh, I like to ask all of our artists, you know, um, what, are, what are some key things you would suggest um, most five string banjos work on in general to get kind of get to that next 
spot if they're an inner you know it's different if you're a total beginner versus if you're an intermediate but what's what's kind of a general thing you often see because i know you do a fair amount of camps and teaching as well yeah um one thing i see a lot is that people aren't connected enough to their instrument to be able to pick out a simple melody so like i like to say you know say we're in the key of g um if we're going to play jingle bells without touching the banjo what's the first note you're going to play and where is it and just challenge yourself to, to find it. And then think of another tune, you know. Uh, the Christmas tunes are so good because they're like so deeply ingrained, you know, in our minds. You know, Frosty the Snowman. What, if in the key of G, what string are you going to play first and where to start that melody? Just like this process of connecting yourself to the instrument. And the reason I think that's important is because when you get to, you know, trying to think about your own solos, because that's usually like the big wall for people. You can learn from tab and you can learn what's written on the page, but how do you figure out the next thing for yourself or be able to improvise or when it comes around to you in the circle in the jam, how do you know what to do? Well, you can never make a mistake if you're playing the melody. The melody is never wrong. A lot of other things can be wrong. Misplaced licks can be wrong, but the melody is never wrong. So if you can find the melody, then all you need to do is ornament around it and you know that you're never wrong. So um, then take that challenge of like the jingle bells thing and move it up the neck because that's usually where I see a lot of people struggling. It's like, I want to play a solo up the neck, but I don't know what to do. So yes, it's very confusing if you don't know your chord shapes because then you're looking up the neck and you're like, oh my God, all I see are strings and frets, but I don't see any shapes. It's kind of like looking at the sky at night, but you don't know how to find a constellation. It's just a bunch of dots. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing I tell people is just at the most basic level, just take your G chord and then know that this is a G chord. And as you're thinking about that, think about the fact that your roots on the first string and the fourth string in this shape, and it's on the second string in this shape. And then just go back and forth between these two things until you kind of get them in your muscle memory and in your eyes. And then, you know, think about the fact that this is your G too, because that's a G and it's an octave higher. So now you've got a point of reference. You've got an anchor point. And then think about, you know, how do you, how are you going to play jingle bells up the neck, you know, you know, or challenge yourself to play uh, even like a bluegrass melody, like lost all my money but a two dollar bill so you found the notes and then you put your roll around it and that's kind of how you start i don't know it's i feel yeah. like there's um there is like a simple calculus for explaining to people how to do it and i know it can really befuddle a lot of people like how to make that leap like that's the big leap but I think that um, finding melodies just challenging yourself to find a melody on the instrument and then ornament around it that's the path in yeah I, I agree I mean so many people learn from tab and tab is a great tool but it's such a crutch that everybody mm -hmm. some people don't use their ears and don't listen to the melodies or, or know what they're really playing um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other thing I was kind of alluded to it before, but don't let this part be a deterrent from you being able to enjoy the instrument. Because if you can't figure out this Scruggs thing, 
That doesn't mean you can't enjoy playing the banjo. So forget the Scruggs thing for a minute and just know your basic chords. I mean, there's just three chords for 80% of Western music, right? So you know your G chord is free. I mean, that's like the best deal of the day. It's like the G chord is free, you know? It's free. So there's G. And so you just need to learn two more chords and you can play most songs. So forget the Scruggs thing and just strum the banjo. So that's the other thing. Don't let, don't let the desire to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown ruin your love of and enjoyment of the banjo. That's good. I see a question on the chat here, on, in this kind of in this topic of um, how much time should one spend on on practicing without burning out? <laughs> well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, gosh, if, if I had time, I, I love playing banjo. And when I start to play banjo, it's like uh, the Bermuda Triangle for me. I don't know where the time goes. It's like the clock starts going around the hours really fast. And I look up, and all of a sudden, it's three hours later. So, I, I, but unfortunately, I've got other stuff that I have to do. So it's not so much how much should you practice, because I guess the answer to that would be, um, as much as you can while you're still enjoying it. But I think the other part of the answer is, how can you practice smartly? And I'm not mm -hmm. sure I really know the answer to that. I just know that you need to think about that. So rather than sitting down and playing, you know, the same thing over and over every time you sit down to play, sit down with a goal of what you're going to try to do that day. So like today I've got an hour to practice. And one thing was when I went to the jam last weekend and it came to my turn to play, you know, solo for Boil Them Cabbage Down in the jam, I couldn't do it. So, you know, I'm going to spend 20 minutes today thinking about what, maybe what Allison said, you know, finding that melody and see if I can put a roll around it. So I'm going to do that for part of my time. And then I'm going to take something that I already do know, and I'm going to practice with a metronome. So, like, we've all heard that for 100 years. And, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be, because it used to be that horrible thing that went back and forth, that big thing. <laughs> and now you have all these great options on your phone. So find something like, I use an app called Drum Beats, and in that app there's something called Country Shuffle. And it's the most horrible sounding, like, train drum pattern. But it's super fun to play banjo to. So put that in your headphones and play a tune you know and try to play it really in time because the beautiful thing about, many beautiful things about Earl Scruggs is playing, but one of them definitely was, it's like this, it's like God is in the details when you gets to that, like at a granular level, the space between the notes, the great banjo players are just so consistent, you know, metronomically consistent with their right hand. And that's what makes it sound really beautiful. So that would be like the next part. And then I would probably like take the last 20 minutes and say like, what's, what's a new thing that I'm working on? A new piece of tab or a new thing that I'm trying to, you know, tab out, you know, off YouTube or whatever it is, or a book that I'm working from and then challenge yourself to do something new. But all that to say, if you sit down with a plan, you're probably going to progress faster than if you just sit down to like jam out on, 
I keep saying Pike County Breakdown because the <laughs> teacher gave me like 20 pages of tab of Pike County Breakdown. And, and when I never learned it, he he fired me as a student. So, um, so I'm kind of damaged by that, too. But just take, you know, if, if you just sit down and play what you already know, you're going to continue to reinforce, you know, whatever bad habits you have uh, um, in your playing. Who's <laughs> our friend sorry here? About the, <laughs> sorry about the feline. This right. is... Um, this is Finn McCool McPufferson. And uh, sorry for the view here. Goodbye. <laughs> but that's, that's a great question. I mean, it's something that we, I'm sure we can all do better. And that's something that I think about a lot is how to maximize your practice time to be as efficient as possible. Because at the end of the day, you're doing it to enjoy yourself, to relax, but also to progress. Right, right. Especially when, you know, when we when we have other things to do, you know, work and 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 family and other things. Um, so if we only have 20 minutes a day, you know, we, we do need to focus on practicing or else because you see students say, I'm not getting better, I'm not getting better. And it's mm -hmm. usually because they play the same thing every time they pick up the instrument. Right. And I mean, we're all guilty of that. I do that, too. Yeah, I do. I do it as well. <laughs> because I like to relax, too. I need the relaxed time of actually just playing and having fun. Um, yeah. But the, my brain doesn't want to work anymore. <laughs> do you want to play another tune for us? Uh, I could do that. Um, is there a particular kind of tune? You know, you were talking about playing slow. And yeah. And then I was talking about picking out melodies, so maybe I could kind of marry those two ideas. On, on the last record we did, um, kind of the, the idea of the record was to play some cover tunes on the banjo. Um, yeah. And the goal of that was because we realized that a lot of people who come to one of our shows, say at a performing arts center, um, they were coming because it was programmed, and so it must be good for them, even though they would never go to a banjo concert otherwise. And... I realized after talking to a lot of these folks who really enjoyed hearing the banjo do something besides uh, Beverly Hillbillies is that they couldn't, they didn't really know what was, what was cool about the instrument, you know, or understand what was happening because they weren't banjo players. So we started to take some tunes that were familiar to people um, and play those so people could hear what it was about the banjo that was cool, hopefully. Um, if that makes sense, just kind of take a melody so that they could hear the melody. Because a lot of times if you're playing, uh, you know, something very scruggsy like... Uh well, somebody might possibly recommend recognize that if you play banjos that sounded kind of like shuck in the corn but if you said to someone hum the melody to shuck in the corn it would be like whoa okay and then to somebody who's not used to hearing the banjo they would just say like what my son used to say when he was little just dupa 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 that's the sound <laughs> the banjo makes so okay so so then we took some of these old tune or you know like standard tunes and put them on the banjo to try to help people get across that barrier. So here's a little bit of time after time, and I'll show you what I mean. And this is one, you know, that literally, this is one one thing, it's like challenging yourself to find melodies on the banjo. There are some surprising melodies that are right on the dance. And this is, you know, just the... 
C chord, and there's time after time. So let me, I'll play a little of it for you. That sounded fantastic, really. Oh, and we're getting great comments. A lot of people are loving it on, <laughs> who are watching oh, it. Awesome. Yeah, such a great tune. You can't hardly ruin it. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> There's a great question that came in from Sylvia um, saying, what would you recommend to young musicians who are unable to jam due to COVID who are seeking to develop jam skills? Oh, yeah. Um, I really feel for them. They should make their parents learn to play, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's really tough. It's I'm not sure what I would suggest. Um, because I will say, even for us, those of us who've been playing for years and years, I did a, a session a couple of weeks ago for the Celtic Connections um, Transatlantic sessions for this festival in, in Glasgow, Scotland. 
and a bunch of us got together and we did like a masked performance of a couple of tunes. And, you know, even for those of us who've been doing it for a long time, um, the muscle memory of playing with other people is kind of eroding during this time. It's just weird, you know? It's just like, I know that we will never forget how to ride the bike, the proverbial bike, but, you know, it's going to take a little bit to get it back, I think, once we're all allowed to, you know, be around each other again. So for kids and young musicians who are trying to increase those skills during this time, I think it's going to be tough to do it with real live people. But, you know, I think just make avail yourself of the technology and tools that we have. So there are a lot of jam tracks. I mean, there's tons of jam tracks on YouTube. I think the most important thing is don't just sit around and play the same thing over and over by yourself, by yourself. Like, play it with a metronome or play it with a jam track or, you know, if there's not someone else in your household that you can play with, uh, use what's available online or, you know, make your own backing tracks. But if you sit around and just play by yourself, chances are you're not going to improve your time and you're just, when you are finally able to play with other people, the pocket's going to be that much harder to find. Yeah, that's good advice. Um. It, it, for people even even pre-COVID to, to, to play with, uh, you know, play along with records or play along with, with jam tracks or, or, or something just to, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't always have um, people around you that you can that you can jam with. So Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and even when you do, you know, it's like I've got, I live in a house full of instruments and, and Gary plays great bass, but you know, we just find that we don't sit around and play music together a lot of times because we're working on different kinds of things. So, yeah, just uh, fortunately, you know, this this didn't happen 25 years ago pre-internet and pre all the stuff that we have now. So, it's not not as bad as it could have been. Right. It must have been it must have been horrible to keep your chops up during the great pandemic of 1918. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't know how people did it then. Well, you didn't have you, you, you did. The only entertainment was playing music for each other. You know, there was no. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, no one was trying to play three finger banjo then. Maybe it was easier to do the plectrum thing. Right, <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned something you played that you did something for uh, Celtic Connections, um, and then I also saw that um, that Compass Records had acquired the Green Linnet album label and, and Mulligan, and uh, so. So what would you, you're familiar with the Celtic scene. Are there any banjoists that we should look out for? Oh, yes. Um, you know, what's so cool is that, um, I mean, and everyone knows this, but when you actually go to Ireland and experience it, it's super cool. The roots of bluegrass, in part, come from the, the fiddle tune tradition and the music of the British Isles and Ireland. So everyone knows that, right? But when you actually go to a pub, and the people in the pub start playing. They're like, oh, you know, let's play a little of uh, teetotalers. And someone starts playing. You're like, okay, well, that's not teetotalers. That's temperance real. So you realize you know the same tune. It's just that, you know, their version might have more triplets in it than yours does. So all that to say that what's happening on tenor banjos is very relatable to what's happening on, what you can do on a five-string banjo. Um, you tend to need to use more single-string technique, but, um, you know, to like... Um, 
called My Love is in America, and Eamon Coyne taught that to me. He's a great tenor banjo player, and he's someone I would definitely check out. We put out um, at least one of his records, uh, the one we put out called Through the Round Window, I think. He's a great player. Um, Jerry O'Connor is also an amazing player, and he was a winner of this year's Steve Martin Banjo Prize, in fact. First Irish banjo player to win that. Um, and... I'm trying to think who else. Those are the two guys that come to mind, uh, but there there are quite a few of them, and you can definitely take what they're doing, even though they're playing on an instrument that's tuned in fifths, unlike ours, and adapt. You know what's going on there, and it's super fun. Cool, cool. Here's a question came in from uh, from Jurgen. Um, are there musicians you would like to play with from other genres? Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a great way to, to stretch yourself. And I mentioned that I'm working on a new record. And um, one of the tunes I wrote on that record, I actually recorded with the Kronos Quartet. Obviously, um, not a bluegrass string quartet. Although they <laughs> have their, their fingers in a lot of different genres. So, you know, just like when you approach working on something with people or, who are coming out of a different musical space, it just expands your horizons and your way of thinking about you know, not only how you're composing, but how you're actually playing and, and sonically what's happening with your instrument. Um, and I'm also have written a tune for Sharon Isbin, who's um, just one of the best classical guitarists and uh, that we're recording together. And, you know, there's another example, too, of, of um, you know, opening your horizons by, you know, thinking about how they're going to need to approach what you're writing for them. So, yes, uh, those are two people that are two entities that I've wanted to collaborate with for a while. So that's kind of happening. And um, Nat Cohen is somebody else. She's an amazing uh, yeah. clarinet player from Israel. And uh, she does a lot of Shoro stuff. So I've been working on a Shoro tune, see if she might be willing to record it with me. Um, you know, the banjo is an amazing instrument. And it's just crazy that bluegrass music kind of came up at the same time as clear channel radio and then later network television and just a couple of placements and uses of the instrument kind of branded it for most people alive today as this hillbilly instrument but it's only i feel like it's only because of because of that kind of media exposure and the way the instrument's been used mm -hmm. that so many people still just think oh beverly hillbillies that's it but there's so much you can do with it and uh, I know I'm preaching to the choir on some level, but when you get to like take your instrument in a room with someone who's not in bluegrass and try to get in their musical space, you just makes you realize even more it's just an instrument. It doesn't need to be stuck in a genre any more than a guitar should be or, uh, or a fiddle slash violin. That's great. Um, have, have, you mentioned Shoros. Are you, are you, do you know about that Shore Facebook group? Um, a friend of mine started, but there's some banjo players on it. That's why I thought maybe your Jake Sheps oh. is in there and some other banjo players. Oh, I, yeah, I will definitely check that out. Thank you for okay. mentioning that. That's awesome. Jamie, do you have some questions? I do. I do. Alison, thank you so much, uh, first of all. Um, <laughs> I think my favorite comment of the whole thing so far is uh, thank you so much for the push. Uh, to finish my partially done recording project. So you've definitely uh, uh, been inspiring a whole bunch. There's so many comments on this uh, today um, about just, just being inspired and motivated to, to, to 
kind of get moving on things and uh, it's really cool. Um, but I do have a few uh, just more general questions than necessarily related to one another. Uh, Kathy asks, what picks do you use? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let you tell the world. Um, I use Showcase Picks. Oh, um, that 1941 company, were you going to think it was Nationals, right? I, I assume you'd, you'd use Blue Chip for some reason. Oh, okay, so I've got a Blue Chip thumb pick. Ah. And I finally found a Blue Chip thumb pick that's small enough for my hands. So I will say for <clears> women <throat> and girls, you know, playing the banjo, that was one of the biggest obstacles for me was getting my picks to fit. Yeah. Because, you know, you guys have these big fingers and thumbs. <laughs> So you don't have to bend the metal over on the top of itself to get it to stay on your finger, but we do, and that just like adds one additional level of torture to the whole thing. Um, and for a long time, I was wanting to try the blue chip thumb picks because everybody, all the guys, were using them, and yeah. I finally found one that's small enough. Um, and so I know it's it's possible. I think it's the small JD Crow one, or maybe it's extra small and it fits. So, and I do recommend that. I for the longest time used the multicolor Dunlop thumb picks. And they sound really good and full, but they do get scratched, and then they're scratched. And then they also get, they wear out on the top, and these seem really good. The showcase finger picks I use because they um, make a smaller size, and they've worked out well for me. Love it. I love it. That's, uh, that's actually not what I was expecting the answer to be, but thank you for clarifying. That's, that's really oh, cool. Sure. That's good. Um, uh, a couple of people saying, uh, in response to Sylvia's question on... Uh, which was regarding jamming during COVID and trying to get with people. Sonobus apparently um, is mm. uh, a good app that lets you play with others online. Um, I don't know, awesome. I haven't got experience, but that's, that's uh, Scott mentioned that one, so that's a great. Uh, do you have any experience with that during the pandemic, using any of those kinds of apps? No, I've, I mean, I've done some Zoom calls that were like, you know, to work on music, and it's it obviously is not great because as soon as I start to talk or play, I can't hear the other person. So I'll, I'll right. definitely check that out. So thanks Sonobus. for the recommendation. S-O-N-O-B-U-S, for sure. Um, when you are playing uh, live, what do you prefer to use, a mic or a pickup? Oh, much prefer the sound of a mic um, because I really, when I'm listening to the sound of a pickup, uh, I really miss the air in the sound. Mm. So my preferred thing and what I've been doing, I think what I was doing up until the pandemic kicked in was yeah just using a mic and yeah. it was working pretty well you know clamped on the banjo so it was a clip on mic not a, not a, not a mic on a fan no yeah clip clipped on right. and which do you use i'm curious which mic was it um i want to say audio technica i wonder if i'm remembering it wrong i'll think of it yeah, did, did, you have to, did you have to custom make like a clip? I know that's sometimes an issue is finding a right a good clip for it. No, yeah. they they uh, actually it came with a clip that worked pretty well that was actually for a drum mount. Okay. And was it? Uh, I think I'm telling you the wrong kind of mic. It's oh, audio okay. Gary right? West is in the background to the rescue. Audio. What kind of mic have we been using? Which? DPA. Oh, DPA. Duh. Yeah, DPA yeah. mic. Okay. DPA mic with a drum mount clip and a Tone Dexter preamp. Perfect, perfect. And in the studio, I mean, we 
we've been working with you for a little while now on some cool videos uh, that we did in collaboration with, with yourself, uh, Compass, and uh, with Roya microphones. So I know you use Roya in the studio and a few other brands as well. Um, any, any comments on, on any kind of studio setup? Uh, well, I really love the Royal Ribbon mic, and we've yeah. been using that a bunch. Um, we some I'm not sure what if that's maybe possibly our preferred banjo mic du jour. Our, our engineer Matt is yeah. we're always experimenting, and it's one of the great like incredible luxuries of having a recording studio is that you can just say, "Hey Matt, let's just go shoot out some banjo mics and see what we like." And, and it's kind of depending on what you're trying to do. You know, like when, when I was working on the track with Kronos. I found that I needed a different kind of banjo tone to sit in the track because they recorded the string part in a huge room at Skywalker Sound. So there's a whole bunch of air and stuff happening in that track that the kind of the usual warm, fat banjo sound that I like to hear on a record didn't seem as appropriate. So kind of like we'll be trying different mic combos for different scenarios. That's awesome, awesome. Um, Couple more. Do you have time? Are you good on time? Oh, right sure. Now? Yeah, I'm great. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so uh, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Urs Rainer um, asked. This was earlier on um, in the conversation uh, when you guys were talking a bit more about uh, chord melody, um, and she said, "As a five-string player, in terms of chord melodies, are there things that we can pick up from our four-string banjo colleagues that we can apply to five-string playing?" Yes. Yes. So I I was um. <laughs> Poking around, YouTube, poking around on YouTube one day, and I found this Eddie Peabody instructional thing for how to play, for how to, oops, I don't know if that's on my end or y'all's, but, uh, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Okay. Oh, maybe that's a little better. Anyways, um, so the short answer to the question is absolutely, and one thing that I learned is that a plectrum banjo is almost tuned the same way, forget the fifth string, but the, the four strings. Uh, plectrum banjo is tuned uh, like in the home sweet home tuning. And uh, so I... teaching you how to play these chords. So, yeah, there it all it all is. So it's so cool. And so then you can learn those chords and then you can tune your string back up so you don't have to think too hard. So yes, plectrum banjo especially, because the instrument is almost tuned the same way as ours. So that's all incredibly relatable. And the Eddie Peabody stuff, just um, his instructional things are really super lovely to listen to. Just his whole thing. If you're not familiar with Eddie Peabody, he was um, 
probably the most famous banjo player in America at a certain time, I would say maybe in mm -hmm. the 20s and 30s, and just a huge, huge vaudeville star. And there's some wonderful old clips of him playing uh, East St. Louis Blues, um, accompanied by a hundred women in bathing suits holding banjos, and it's like, wow, I, I want to live in that America for a minute and see what that was like. <laughs> um, but it's really, it's super inspiring, and it, it's super wonderful. And when I was a teenager, and Stuart Duncan and I was had a job playing at Magic Mountain, um, six days a week at the amusement park, people would always say, oh, do you know Eddie Peabody? And of course I didn't because I came up playing bluegrass, but he was kind of like the gold standard for banjo before it became Beverly Hillbillies, I think. Yeah. And definitely worth checking that stuff out. And there's tons of stuff, uh, I think, with him on YouTube. I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of videos on YouTube that you can, you can yeah. play. He's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, so phenomenal. And this stuff yeah. is so sweet, and it just kind of harkens to such a different... Uh, time in our society and our history and it's but it's banjo and so that's to me what's so interesting about this instrument it's it's part of our now but it's been a part of our history as as a nation for a long time and you know just in its construction to me it's you know it's african it's a drum it's european with the neck and the strings it's like it's the melting pot it's so cool it's like it's like america in an instrument basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think it's it is it's really neat yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think um, we're, we're, we're an hour and ten, um, but I'd love to ask if you have any final words of wisdom. And I think it would be really cool to be able to play out um, the video that, that you sent us yeah. as well. We'll finish on that so everyone can enjoy that before we leave. But um, any final words of wisdom this afternoon that you want to share with the world that maybe we didn't touch on? Um. Not to put you words on the spot. Words of right, wisdom. I, I don't know. It would be something like, <laughs> you know... Eat something green every day. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say it had to be about you know, banjo. Pick, yeah. Wisdom. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I, this is a hard time for everybody, and I think that we'll yeah. all look back on this time, and uh, maybe we won't even want to remember it because it really is a hard time. But I think that music is, is one of the great salves for the soul, and I think, you know, no matter what level you're able to play on, whether, you know, even if you're just starting an instrument, just kind of try to find some solace in your music because I think it's it's there for you, you know? And uh, don't beat yourself up if you don't play as well as you want to because none of us at any level play as well as we want to. So just, uh, you know, just use it as a vehicle to express yourself and, and please yourself and just enjoy it. I mean, you're, when you play banjo, you're part of... Um, just a unique part of, of America and American history and you're connected to so many people not just in this country but around the world who love this singular instrument so absolutely you know, approach it with a smile yeah that's that's my, my seven-year-old daughter just started banjo lessons two weeks ago and uh and so she's uh yeah she's smiling she just figured out twinkle twinkle little star on one oh, string that's awesome. and she's she's so proud of herself so um she's gonna love that I mentioned her on uh on the live stream today, so. <laughs> oh, that's All awesome. Right. Well, tell her, tell her to stick with it. We need more girls playing the banjo. Uh, yeah, actually, if you have a minute, that was one question, sure. I think. Give me one second. That, that actually does yeah. raise a point. Um, that is a topic. Yeah, Wes brought up the question. This was earlier on in the chat, so I, I apologize for nearly missing it, but he says, uh, he says, I also, uh, sorry, I always think that women have more natural dexterity than men. Think of how fast they can type in text, is what he writes. Uh, why aren't there more female players? Although they are coming onto the scene, do you have mm -hmm. any thoughts on that? I mean, there's, oh, there's lots I've, coming up, but 
I, ha I have a lifetime worth of thoughts on that. Um, right, that go. would be like a separate. separate. <laughs> um, why aren't there more women playing the banjo? Well, so this is something that's fascinating to me. At the end of the 1800s, the banjo was a lady's instrument. And yeah. most, you know, many banjo players were women, and they're all female banjo orchestras. And you don't have to dig very deeply on the internet to find pictures of women playing banjos in the, at the end of the 1800s. So it's, it's a cultural thing with bluegrass music that I think is the reason why, you know, there haven't been so many women playing the banjo. I mean, bluegrass music was created by its founding fathers. And yeah. if you dig back to the roots of bluegrass music, it's hard to find any women who were very influential in the music, in my opinion, until you start to get maybe into the 60s or 70s, but definitely to the 1980s. So it took that long for women to, you know, kind of infiltrate the music enough to really start to have an impact on the direction that the music was taken. And so I think about, you know, like the cultural reasons why. And bluegrass music obviously grew out of the Southern agrarian society. And if you think about women's work, you know, in a traditional society, um, women's work involves your hands and it tends to go from sun up to sun down and beyond. And men's work in that kind of scenario is like work in the fields and then come home and you're kind of done for the day. So your hands are free. And I, even now, you know, in like our contemporary society, I'm just surprised how much my hands are full doing the kind of work that women do domestically, whether it's, you know, making food or laundry or whatever. And so I think that that's part of the reason, too, why, you know, like in traditional societies, women sing, but they don't necessarily play because they don't have the time to work at it enough to get it up to that really virtuosic level. But then, you know, on the flip side, you know, Ralph Stanley's mom taught him how to play banjo and Doc mm -hmm. Watson's mom, you know, taught him some banjo stuff too. So women have played. I think they just haven't become like the great players yet. And of course now that's all changing and there's so many great women playing banjo and, you know, mandolin, fiddle and you name it. But I think right. that's, his, you know, traditionally why. And, and then, you know, just like the social aspect of bluegrass music, too, you know, it was unseemly for a woman to be on the road touring in the 40s and 50s. And so, you know, as, the, as bluegrass music was, you know, in its infancy and then adolescence, there just wasn't really a place, an easy place for women to be in it. Yeah, so, and, and you have the bluegrass all-stars as well which you you, yeah. you you collaborate with, which is just a prime example of what you just said, of all this incredible female talent in, in people like Sierra Hall and Missy Rains and, and, and others um, all joining in the fun, you know, and mm -hmm. it's phenomenal to watch. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing too because, you know, I don't know if we have more dexterity, but, you know, one thing I love about playing with the First Ladies is just there's a delicateness to the music um, that's different than, you know, when you play with, a bunch of men, which is also great, but there's like somehow more muscle when the guys do it, but there's just like a delicateness when the first ladies play, and it's just, to me, the music skates yeah. along in a really nice and interesting and unique way, and so it's super fun. I mean, I once I realized that we had a band of women who were players up, up at that level, it was just like, oh, we've got to play together, so I'm glad we've yeah. had, had a chance to. That's really cool. We should we should get all of you on uh, on Daring Live one day, and uh, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be a fun time. We'll see what we can do. Um, tell us about the video before we play it and and, and sign off. But um, this is uh, your cover of Here Comes the Sun. How right. did this come about? Um, 
Well, it was at the beginning of the pandemic, I was uh, reading an article about a hospital in uh, New York in the city and, you know, how they would play Here Comes the Sun, you know, to like inspire the staff that was just toiling through these horrible long hours and dealing with COVID patients. So I thought it would be fun to do something with that tune, you know, it kind of felt timely to me, you know, back in the spring. So I grabbed my low banjo, and it's another example of one of those things where it's like, it's surprising what you can find under your hand, you know. This banjo's tuned to a C tuning, but... melody is just like it's almost like wow it, it was meant to be played on the banjo right. so then I was in. messing around with that and then the bridge you know so I started to mess with that bridge and I realized that it was a lot like which is like Waters of March the Tom Jobim song Brazilian composer yeah. So then I thought, well, it would, would be cool to like figure out a meld of those two tunes, and that was the genesis for this. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're going to play it now. Uh, everybody, thank you so much, as always, uh, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure, Alison. You've been an absolute delight, um, as oh, I yeah. uh, didn't expect anything less. Uh, thank you, oh, Gary, in the background for assisting with the tech stuff today. <laughs> we appreciate that, too. Thumbs up. Um, yeah, earlier on in, in, in what we call the sound check, we had David in Louisiana with some threatening storms sounding in the background, <laughs> <laughs> lightning and thunder, and, uh, and, and Addison with some internet issues. But we, we got there, and we, we couldn't be happier. So, Addison, thank, thank you so much. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the great work that you guys do at Deering, really. I mean, this for anyone who's, you know, thinking that they need another voice for their banjo playing, I really, I can't tell you how much I love the Julia Bell banjo. It just opens your ears up to new ideas when you can hear a banjo that actually, you know, resonates in that low way, and it's just super fun to play. So thank you guys for your mastery of banjo making. It's what we do pleasure thank you guys and thank you everybody for tuning in we will see you next week have a very safe Thanks evening here's the video here comes see the you. sun you bet